to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, Brother Man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined, as always, by the Long Island, excuse me, the original Long Island Ice B, Benny Scal. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Well, Dan, back in the year 1981, and this is not going to be a poem, I promise. So uh, in 1981, I called a Long Island cable station, and I answered a trivia question. The trivia question was, who, what band was Peter Frampton in before he uh, embarked on a solo career? And uh, the answer was Humble Pie. And I won a, a Frampton uh, record album because of that. And I, I come before you today, 42 years later, eating Humble Pie because your Orioles are ahead of my Yankees. Not just ahead, Benny. They've won 11 of the last Hot, 13. Hottest team in the league. Yeah. Yep. That's all right. They, uh... <laughs> so you got I, you know, they a, hey, I'll say I got to throw it out there. They had a stretch. Before their uh, game last night against the Red Sox, they 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 gave up three runs in uh, over the last uh, 54 innings. So wow, that was a, that was a good good defense stretch there. But it looked, looking good. Get the get the baseball checks out of the way, Benny. I know we're midseason. We'll throw a lot of those. Um, but you mentioned Yankees. We mentioned baseball. We always talk about legacies in baseball, but we also love to talk about the legacies of wrestling. And we've done a lot of shows where we've talked to family to get the inside scoop, and we're doing that again tonight, Benny. Watch everybody who we got on the line with us. Yeah, we've had a number of uh, children of professional wrestlers and even announcers. And without exception, every single one of them, I'll use another baseball reference. They knocked it out of the park. And tonight's going to be no exception. In fact, I'm going to bet a month's worth of my Dan and Benny paychecks that Dave Meltzer is actually going to give this episode seven stars. So I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce the daughter of the legendary Wild Bull of the Pampas, Pampero Firpo. Mary Freeze, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Thank you, Benny. Hi, Dan. Pleasure Hello. to be here. Thank you for having me. Pleasure's ours. Absolutely. You know, Benny, you said we, it's going to be seven stars. If we had done this interview in the Tokyo Dome, it would have been eight. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Bigger payoff, too. Right. Well, Benny, you uh, you really went out and put all this together. So first question is yours. What are you thinking? All right. Well, uh, and I'm going to tell Mary a quick story that I actually I started watching wrestling in 1968. Um in New York, w, uh, it was Capital Wrestling uh, from Washington, D.C. And I actually, because, and I went up becoming an accountant, I think in large part because I started this way. I actually had these blue index cards, and every index card had a wrestler's name on it. And then they each uh, put the date, you know, the, the opponent, the, the outcome, and then their cumulative one loss record and percentage. So I had one of those for every wrestler. And um, so I'm, I'm a record keeper, and, and uh, uh, not rumor has it, your, your dad was a, a meticulous record keeper. And um, I've heard a couple of different numbers thrown out, 6,882 matches or 8,882 matches. Which one is it? And, you know, it's really a shame because your dad, uh, like you're going to talk about, was a very meticulous record keeper. And it's, it's a shame that 
uh, a lot of other wrestlers did not do that. Yeah, Benny, you're right. And speaking of records, I have to circle back to baseball because I'm in the Bay Area and I just looked it up. I've gone to an A's game. There probably were 3,000 fans at a home game in Oakland in the uh, the night after opening night. There was mm. nobody there. Uh, Soon to be the Las Vegas there. Athletics. Yes, I, it's, it's breaking my heart that the Oakland A's are going to go to Vegas in a few years. But uh, the A's right now are dead last and the Giants are in fourth place out of five. So I just had to circle back to baseball because I love baseball and wrestling. Um, anyway, but yes, about records, it was 6,882 matches. And my dad in a speech for the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame induction in 2018 said it at 8,882. But at that point, his memory wasn't always clear. And I think he latched onto that number, but it was the 6,000 number. That's still a lot of matches. I mean, a lot of matches. Yeah, for sure. He started his wrestling career. He has he detailed a lot of his uh, travels, his wrestling matches, the cards, uh, personal photos when he was on the road with the wrestlers, just all kinds of photographs and memorabilia that he kept. And um, he started his career. He has a picture of himself with short hair, just looking so young. He said, my first match, Argentina, 1951. So he was only 21. Wow. And he hung it up effectively in 1981, came back for a couple of comeback matches in 1986. So a 30-year-plus career all over the world, 21 countries and six different continents. Unbelievable. That's, you know, Benny, we always seem to get those stories where they talk about how active wrestlers were. I mean, think about the talent today that wrestles maybe a couple of times a month. They'd have to go for 50 years to get 8,000 matches. Yeah, nobody's wrestling 200 matches a year now. Maybe maybe 50 to 75 at most. Absolutely. I mean, back, back in the days we're about to talk about, it wasn't unheard of to wrestle yeah, three, three, four, five hundred matches a plus, year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but I want to come back to your, uh, your uh, three, oh, go ahead. 350 days or what was the? Evan yeah, three hundred fifty days. Evan Ginsberg. Yes, that was a fantastic movie. Absolutely, it's, seen um, it many times. Yeah, yeah great we've, movie. We've, having had him on, that's a, a great interview as well. Like the stories that came from that, making that was fun to hear. But you, uh, we talked about obviously matches, but along with the matches, there was a big transition. I was hoping to kind of expand on that a little bit. Your, your dad seemed to really morph seamlessly from persona to persona. I mean, uh, great example. He was in Oklahoma. Uh, I'm assuming that was Leroy McGurk he was working for at the time. This was February 19th, 1960, in a tag match. Three days later, as the Pampiro Furpo character, he's in Washington, D.C., winning the uh, the title from Ted Lewin, uh, his first run in New York. I mean, can you talk about your dad's various personas and, and then obviously the origin of his most popular character, which was Pampiro Furpo? Yes. So thank you for asking that. When he was starting his career, he grew up in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where he was born and raised. And he started in the 1950s and he had that ethnic kind of look to him, but he wasn't going to pass as Japanese or German, so he became the villainous Russian. And that was the persona that he started with in South America. And he wrestled 
as El Russo, the Russian, because he kept a lot of not just the Box y Lucha magazine, which still runs today, but he kept different local printings and publications from South America because he started in Argentina as Ivan El Terrible, Ivan the Terrible, and sometimes was just billed as El Russo. And it was El Russo versus El Yankee, like the, the Russian versus the Yankee and different um, in different types of matches. So he started as Ivan the Terrible in Argentina. And I'm not sure how that came to be other than he just fit the gimmick of a Russian and he was going to be a heel. And so that worked for him. And he had that long uh, kind of Rasputin, like the long beard and the hair and just looked like that. I have some great pictures of him in that Russian garb with the Russian hat and the the kind of the silk robes. So he wrestled as Ivan the Terrible when he made his debut in Argentina in the early 1950s. And then from Argentina, he went to all the neighboring countries and all the South American countries, Chile, Venezuela, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Brazil, like all over South America wrestling as Ivan the Terrible. And he kept that gimmick wrestling into Mexico as Ivan the Terrible. And then when he came to the United States for his first match in 1957 in Houston, Texas against Don Leo Jonathan, that was promoter Morris Siegel. When he wrestled in 1957, he was also billed as Ivan the Terrible against Don Leo Jonathan. And so when he came to the United States, that was his wrestling persona. And then the way that he transitioned into Furpo was that Jack Dempsey officiated one of my dad's earliest matches and as a celebrity guest referee. And he, I think Dempsey had told him, you know, the Russian gimmick is kind of generic. It's not very distinct and it's kind of overused. And there were other wrestlers also wrestling as Ivan the Terrible. So he said, you need something more original. Since you're from Buenos Aires, Argentina, why don't you go by the last name Furpo and use the gimmick that you're Furpo's son? And the Furpo that Dempsey was referring to was the famous boxer Luis Angel Furpo, who Dempsey fought in the 1920s in New York. And the story for um, people who don't know, it's a famous story. It's been memorialized in paintings and other uh, pop culture references. But Luis Furpo was the first Latino to contend for the world title and Madison Square Garden in New York, and he knocked Jack Dempsey out of the ring. And Dempsey fell on the sports writer's table with the typewriters, and the sports writers pushed Dempsey back into the ring, and he ended up beating Furpo um, for that, uh, for that to, re to retain the championship. So Jack Dempsey and, and also Luis Angel Furpo, his nickname was the Wild Bull of the Pampas, the Pampas are grassland region in Argentina. So. Dempsey said, you know, you're from Argentina, you have this wild look, the wild bull, like you're stocky, and why don't you wrestle as Furpo's son? And in that time in the 50s, a lot of boxing fans, they still remember Pompero Furpo, they still remember Luis Angel Furpo, he said, why don't you go by Furpo? And Jack Dempsey then gave him that gimmick. So before he went as Pompero Furpo, he was also billed as Ivan Furpo, so it was kind of a transition between Ivan the Terrible and Pompero Furpo. He was booked as Ivan Furpo, and then he transitioned into Pompero Furpo. And a Pompero is like a big um, wind that blows through the grasslands of the Pampas and knocks everything over. It kind of comes in like a hurricane. And that was how he came in, just wild, you know, and ready to throw down. <laughs> <laughs> that fight, just for your, it, it, we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary of that fight. It was September 14th, 1923. Oh. And um, you're right. The, the sports writers actually saved Dempsey because if he, I, I think if they hadn't done that, I think uh, Luis Verpo would have won the title. But probably the wildest fight in the history of boxing in two rounds, less than two rounds. There were 11 knockdowns 
Wow. Could you win? Could he have won the championship by count out, right? The count oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it could, yes. I think it was 20 seconds at that time, wasn't it? If, well, if you got knocked down in the ring, it was 10. But if you if you fell outside the ring, you had 20. I think they pushed him back yeah. at 14 seconds. So wow. they, they literally saved his butt. because, And I, I've seen the picture. Of it, it's very, very vivid in my mind of, of him laying on the table with his legs up in the air. And I think, like, there's no way he could have got back up on his own. And, and gotten back into the ring. So, yeah, it, he might, Louis Ferpro might have been, you know, staged the biggest upset in the history yeah. of boxing. So I think, you're, I think you're right. And then one other thing, there was a kayfabe article that came out in one of the after magazines, and it said that, uh, it said the title was something like Wrestling's Most Famous Family or Wrestling's Famous Family Connection to Boxing. And it talked about how Luis Furpo was my dad's father and my dad's father who was alive at the time my grandfather was so offended and upset by that he said I'm your father that's not your father you know he was like really <laughs> upset by this kayfabe story that went out in all the after magazines that my dad's father uh, was not Krikor Kachmani and my grandfather my dad's father was actually Luis Angel Furpo and my grandfather was so upset about that <laughs> <laughs> well, well speaking of magazines excellent segue which actually I discovered wrestling magazines in 1968 and they pretty much consumed the the you know overwhelming majority of my disposable uh, discretionary income rather for the next several years. But you know it's funny because when I first I started you know, I grew up in Long Island watched watched uh, Capital Wrestling from DC, and when I got these magazines, I in my mind the only wrestling that existed was what I saw on TV, and now I'm seeing like all these other guys. Uh, you know, that I've never heard of before in, in wrestling in different places around the country. And one of them was your dad. And he literally scared the crap out of me. It just, you know, had one of those, like George Steele, one of those people that just instantly like terrifying. Um, and the magazines were so important back then. And that's what I wanted to ask you. Did, did he speak about, you know, appearing in the magazines and how important the magazines were to the wrestlers back then? Yeah, he did. He was, somebody who collected those magazine covers and kept clippings for himself and sent them home to his family and was very proud to be featured in the wrestling magazines. And he was so photogenic. I mean, he really was, I know he was wild looking, but he really photographed well and um, just did. He looked like a scary guy. And so two of my dad's um, fondest friends in the wrestling business are Bill Apter and George Napolitano. He just had a real love for both of them. And you know, they were around in the beginning of my dad's career. And George Napolitano wrote the bio for my dad for the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame that they used, just this beautiful tribute. And he told me, uh, I called both Bill and George when my dad was in his last couple of days before he passed in January 9th, 2020. I called both of them and I said, you know, he's about to pass. And they both just wrote lovely tributes and were just so nice to me on the phone. They said, your dad always posed for photos, always helped us out with anything that we needed. And um, my dad really considered wrestling a business for sure. And he was a performer and he was a hard worker. He had an incredible work ethic, but he considered it a business. And he knew that the magazines were part of what um, caused his allure and people in other territories demanding his presence. And he understood that. And so just really respected people like Bill and George. And Dave Meltzer also did an interview with my dad in the they're late 70s, early 80s, and Meltzer lives here in San Jose, and he's been a really good friend to me and a wonderful resource. And he said, you know, I brought a photographer with me to the interview with your dad, and he said the photographer, my, he said your dad was kayfabe in the interview and kind of <laughs> had to get the permission from Dave, like, is it okay to kind of break character here? Because he knew Dave Meltzer, but he didn't know who the photographer was. And so he... Um, 
you know, he really protected the wrestling business. He came from that era where you kayfabed, you had to act a certain way in public. You didn't have any social media. Obviously, you couldn't be seen with members of the, you know, the heel locker room couldn't be seen with the baby faces. And he had to leave right. arenas in the trunk of a car and things <laughs> like that to not be attacked by fans. And he went to Puerto Rico and had to look out for fans with knives and old ladies in Madison Square Garden hitting him oh, with yeah. his purses because, <laughs> the worst. you know, her hat pin Mary, right? Like sticking him with hat pins. Krieger, I think, was another one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So he, he had, um, he definitely knew that the wrestling magazines were important. He kept a lot of the black and white shots. I love looking at those. He kept dozens and dozens of scrapbooks on a bookshelf in our family home. And when I was an adolescent, I used to pull those scrapbooks down and go through them. And a lot of the magazine covers, a lot of the magazines, he kept all of those things and was proud of, um, and we talked about humble beginnings. He grew up in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and made it all the way to the United States, which was his American dream since he was a little boy, headlined in Madison Square Garden, went all over the world, and was very proud of that accomplishment. Rightly so. You know, it, it's funny to hear in the story with the, uh, I don't want to say reputation, but as, as Dave Meltzer is kind of the leading writer today of telling everybody what's going on backstage and all the stories coming from backstage that there was a point where he was the champion of keeping kayfabe when he's, you know, since evolved into the reputation of the guy that, that pulls the curtain back further than anybody. Yeah, that's, that's a funny point. I forgot to say too about George Napolitano. He told me, and he's mentioned this before in print and told my dad on the phone too. He said, when I was 11 or 12, he said I was in Sunnyside Gardens or maybe it was like the Brooklyn Rollerama or something. And he said, I had, George said, I had my little autograph book and I was 11 years old and I saw you coming out of the, some door or something, maybe like in the entrance or the exit. And he said, I saw you coming and he said, I was standing there just timidly with my autograph book. And he said, you charged at me and did this wild blood curdling jungle like scream. And he said, I threw my notebook and I went, took off running. And my dad just <laughs> kind of chuckled and he went, oh, ha, ha. I said, well, I guess I did my job well. Right. You know, exactly. George said, but I came back because I wanted to see somebody beat you up or I wanted to see what you would do in the ring. And later, you know, 10, 15 <laughs> years later, George Napolitano was interviewing my dad and taking photos um, with him. And it just... It just reminded me when you're talking about journalists, but yeah, it's interesting about Dave. I mean, he's got such an amazing um, pinpoint encyclopedic recollection of things. You know, I'll just say something to him conversationally and he'll just pull out, uh, you know, 10 or 15 different related facts with names and dates and figures. And he's, I really respect all the work he's done as a, as a historian and just chronicling the business currently. You mentioned, San Diego, that's that's a good transition. The uh, we've had several children uh, of professional wrestlers, and as Benny mentioned, even announcers on the show in the past couple years. We've been doing this. Uh, you're the youngest of three children, and by the time you were born, your your father was on the tail end of his career and and settling down in California. Uh, great example. We had Paige Von Hess Sutherland on, the daughter of Kurt Von Hess. She told us her family moved 17. There was a point where they moved 17 times in 10 years. So two-part question, did the Furpo family keep moving trucks in business? And uh, what was it like for you and your siblings to be the child of a professional wrestler? Obviously, you, you had a great story at school, but in the neighborhood and and out and about in town where where you weren't allowed to go do certain things because of their character your father had to keep yeah i actually uh, Paige von hess i would love to c 
connect with her. She, I have my dad has some cards from the Detroit Territory, 1975, with Kurt von Hess, and I think his partner was Carl von Schatz. Is that right? Yes, correct. Yeah, and they were tag teaming, and I just, I just was looking at a card right now. I digitalized a lot of my dad's collectibles by taking photos on my cell phone, and I just saw a card from 1975 with Kurt von Hess on it. Um, yeah, you're right. I was born in 1975 at the tail end of, or I guess the tail end of my dad's career since he started in the 50s. And um, I didn't really bear the brunt of the frequent moves, but my mom did because they married in 1969 and he was still on the move. And she said, we lived in North Carolina, then we lived in Santa Monica, then we lived in Minnesota and lived in Michigan. And they were traveling quite a bit during that time. And my brother was born in 1970. My sister was born in 73. So when I came along in 1975, we'd actually stabilized in California and that's where my dad continued to live until he passed and where I still am. And the reason we ended up in California in 75 is because my older brother was five years old and starting kindergarten. And my mom said, we can't switch schools with him. I think I think they bought their house in 77 or 78. So even though they had kind of settled in California, my dad was still, well, we can just go out here for a few months. And my mom said, we can't do that. John's starting kindergarten. We have to stay in the, in one place. So that was how we ended up um, staying in one place was when my older brother started school. And my dad still went on the road, but just, uh, you know, went on his own and made dates and then came back. And I, um, I don't, I yeah, my mom was tired of the moving. I know that. And she's told me over the years they my parents divorced in 1985, but were still amicable um, until my dad passed. But she's told me she said all those different moves. I ended up just throwing away a lot of things that were important to her that she just got sick of packing them up. So she said some of her old high school memorabilia and stuff she threw away. And my dad said the same thing. He said, you know, I said, you kept so many wrestling things. He said, I wish you would have seen my collection before all those moves when I was constantly moving. He said, I threw away so many things. He said, it breaks my heart now, but it was a burden to just keep taking all those things with him everywhere he went. So um, I don't, I don't know uh, how much he kept with him on the road. Maybe he also stored things with his parents or he had two sisters. Maybe he stored things with them. But my mom is a Midwestern girl. She was born in Milwaukee and they met at a wrestling match um, in 1968. And um, my mom was a big fan of the Crusher and all the wrestling, the heyday in Milwaukee and just was like fascinated by his persona and was surprised to see how he was just a completely different person outside the ring, you know, very well-spoken, literate, articulate, that Pompero Furpo, the wild man persona was very different from the way that he was in um, in real life. But she she loved living in the Midwest and she would have wanted to settle there because my dad, you know, his... Um, my dad and had brought his family into the United States and they settled in California. My mom's family was in Milwaukee. So she would have liked to stay in the Midwest, but he wanted a warmer climate and his sisters and parents had already settled in California. And that was where we, we stayed pretty much from, um, I think they got their house, like I said, maybe 1978 when I was three. So we didn't move around much. That didn't affect me like it affected Paige and some of the other kids. Nice. So your, your dad was, ahead of his time in my opinion you know nowadays every single wrestler they have their own finishing hole and it's got their own uh, specific name to it whereas back in the day you know most guys they applied a boston crab or a, a full nelson or a sleeper hold but your dad had a finisher called el garfio which was a claw hold which would render his his uh, opponent unconscious how did, did did he come up with that name 
I wish I knew. I really wish I knew. I don't know. And he was using the bear hug as a submission move early in his yes. career. And I'm not sure when he uh, transitioned to that claw hold, El Garfio. I thought it meant the claw in Spanish, but my Spanish speaking students, I teach sixth grade, they said, no, it's not the claw, it's the hook, because they said in yes. Peter Pan, you know, yes. Peter Tuck Pan. Gaff. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. They said, you know, in, uh, in Peter Pan, they translate Captain Hook to Garfio. He said, no, it's the hook, right? So I'm not sure when he did that. And I don't know, you know, he came to Texas early in his career. And I don't know maybe if that was related, possibly maybe to Fritz von Erich, like the claw versus the claw hold, you know, something like that. Um, I don't know when the origin of that. I really don't. I remember also there are magazines where he's like painted his fingernails black and he would like put spikes allegedly on his fingers to drive like spikes into his opponent's head and squeeze squeeze their head and make them bleed. I mean, it was very, very heelish, uh, scary looking finishing maneuver. I know Fritz would do that too, where he would apply that claw and squeeze and then the blood would be coming down the opponent's head. So I'm Baron not sure the origin. Too. Yeah, of course, of course. And I, they did a lot of claw versus claw matches right before my dad passed, the year before he passed. Um, I got Jim Rashke's phone number, Baron Von Rashke from maybe Fred Curry. There were a couple of people, maybe it was Lanny Poffo that, my, that were able to, um, my dad was able to connect with and he was one of them and my dad was very fond of him so they did their claw matches and uh, I wish I knew the origin I don't that's some of the uh, more prominent memories uh, of your father's career were the promos with it with his feud with Rashke where he would do the um, what is it the, the the steel beam he would bend he yes yeah. The, the name had Rashke on it. And he'd bend the beam in his mouth. And then they were always, that was, I mean, that was those were the bloody, you know, nine, nine times out of 10, it would end with boat, you know, cause going over the top rope was a no, no, or getting not, like you said, the count out outside the ring. They would, they were the bloody brawls that ended in a double disqualification before that was common in wrestling. Yeah. You know, my, uh, my sixth grade students, I tell them about my dad and that promo with him bending the bars on YouTube. And also right after that promo, there's the match with him and Baron Von Raschke. And it's so funny to see. I mean, it's like they're both heels. Like Baron Von Raschke is digging in his trunks to get a foreign object. And then my dad is using the double finger poke on his eyes. And when the ref catches him, my dad kind of puts his arms out and says, what, I'm not doing anything. And the kids, my students really get a, a kick out of watching that. And, you know, the referee puts Baron Von Raschke as the winner and my dad shaking his head no and raising his own hand. I mean, it's like they're both kind of acting <laughs> like heels, which I think was also kind of unusual back in that day. Usually there's yes. a pretty clear baby face and a pretty clear heel. Right. But he, um, yeah, he, he really got a, a kick out of talking to Jim Raschke, you know, just a few years ago before my dad passed. And, um, what a, what a nice guy. And my husband bought me a cameo for my birthday of Jim Raschke, uh, talking to me and giving me some memories of my dad. That was such a cool <laughs> surprise birthday gift from my husband. He said, look, I got you a cameo of Baron Von Raschke. And he was talking <laughs> nice. to me. He said, oh, I remember nice. your dad. And he said, we would ride up and down on the bus and he would talk in these different languages and tell me these stories. And um, just what a, what a good guy he is, Jim Raschke. Oh, one other thing, too, I forgot to mention. My dad, I asked him, I said, was that like a gimmicked bar? Like it wasn't because when he when he drops the bar, yeah, I was wondering about that. Mouth, you can hear the weight, the heft of it, like it sounds solid. And I said, mm -hmm. was that just kind of gimmick? Like it it looked like it was hard to bend, but it wasn't. And he said, no, he said that was actually really hard to bend. And he puts a napkin folded up napkin in his mouth to protect his teeth. And it looks like he is really trying hard to bend the bar. And he said, that was 
I know quarter inch thick of steel. He said that's something that other people really couldn't do. He was in, incredibly strong and he liked to, he, he had so much showmanship probably as an adrenaline was going to, and that kicked in from to bend the bar. But he said it was not a gimmicked bar. He said that was like pure steel that was, um, he really worked hard to bend in that promo. You said he, that, you know, it's funny you mentioned originality. Speaking of originality, your father was the master of the oh yeah, you know, years before Randy Savage started using it. Uh, but he also, I mean, at the time he came to the ring with a shrunken head. Uh, what was it named Chimu? Chimu. Uh, Chimu, yeah. And, and um, you know, I mean, it's funny i i i obviously i'm that was before my time uh but i mean i you see it in the interviews and uh you know you, you see it in some of the clips like you said there's a lot of stuff on youtube um i mean we talked obviously at the beginning of the show uh of about baseball and benny and i we've both huge movie buffs um I can't help want to make the comparison um, to the movie Major League. There was a ball player, uh, Pedro Serrano, who had a shrine in his locker. If you remember in the, in the sequel, he became kind of a spiritual. In the first one, he was a real tough, gruff, angry man. In the second one, he became kind of spiritual. And he had like like the shrunken head uh, named Joe Boone. And Joe Boone. it made me – yeah, it made me think about the uh, – if there was any kind of inspiration there um, – because you know the the character, the mannerisms were similar, the name was similar, the style was similar. Any any insight on that? Yeah, I don't know if that was the inspiration for the major league Jobu. I I don't exactly know, but I know that shrunken head was the source of fascination for me ever since I saw pictures of it in those scrapbooks when I was a young kid. I was like ten or eleven, and I'd asked my dad about Chimu. I said where. Um, because he would rub Chimu's head in promos and say, you know, Pompero Furbo's uh, ready for his next opponent. Chimu is getting lonely. And he, like, you're going to like the next opponent was going to be the next shrunken head. Like he needs another friend for Chimu. And he was actually billed as um, in one of his clippings in the scrapbook. He was billed as the headhunter from the island of Borneo. You know, somebody maybe that was a Bob Luce invention. I'm not sure. But or the head shrinker from the island of Borneo, you know, he was billed a couple of times that way. So um, it it was a real shrunken head. And my dad told me that he got it from a tribesman in Ecuador when he was, when my dad was traveling through South America after he left Argentina. And I had, I had asked my mom about it and she said, well, I think she said, I, I don't know what your dad did with that. She said, I think he had it made into jewelry and I wasn't sure how a shrunken head could be made into jewelry. Um, I was like, that doesn't sound, that sounds weird because it's about the size of like a chicken drumstick. I thought, well, how could that be made until jewelry unless you're wearing it or like on a chain, like a wrapper or something, wearing this shrunken head. So I had never seen it before. And my brother found it in a suitcase that my dad had packed with his wrestling boots and his wrestling trunk. And Chimu was in this velvet uh, velvet bag. And my brother just found this. Um, we were moving my dad into assisted living toward the end of my dad's life. And my brother said, you'll never guess what I found. And he he just pulled it out. He put it in the front pocket of his pants and he pulled it out and like stuck the shrunken head in my face. And I'd never <laughs> seen it. So this is what big brothers do because oh, yeah. he used to come home with like he'd find little garter snakes in the backyard or he'd find like crawdads in the creek or he'd find like a mouse and he'd bring it home and like pull it out and show me, you know, this. So he pulled out the shrunken head and, you know, we were in our forties at that time and um, I'm 47 now. And he just put it right in my face and he said, look, it's Chimu. And I just like screamed. I mean, it's this very, um, 
I, Mike Mooneyham, the wrestling writer, referred to it as a macabre oddity. And I said, that's so true. It's That's so a great way to put looking. it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a very macabre oddity. And it looked like it's it has this white kind of cottonish looking hair and eyebrows. And it's got hair on the nape of its neck. And it, it just is so... Um, it looks like petrified. It's just really unusual. And I'd asked my dad about how he acquired it. And he said that a tribesman in Ecuador gave it to him as a sign of respect. Um, he said, my dad said for my, you know, my showmanship and my athletic ability and just like my, maybe it was my dad's status as a wrestler, this tribesman had given it, given it to him as a tribal leader. And I said, where did he come up with the name Chimu? And he said that meant good luck. He said it was the God of the Incas. It meant good luck. And so subsequently with the advent of the internet, I've looked that up before Chimu and Incas and the Incas were, um, involved in some head shrinking in Ecuador, you know, it was a legitimate story because my dad, he, he kept kayfabe to the family to a certain extent, but at a point, like when I was an adult, you know, he wasn't putting me on, like that was a true story that happened that he actually got this shrunken head and I wish I knew more about it and we keep it. He's part of our family. He's a family heirloom. We still keep him in his velvet <laughs> bag and my brother has custody of him. And I posted different photos of Chimu. I have a, the only social media I have, is my dad's um, Pompero Furbo Twitter account and the handle on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook or Instagram, but the handle is P as in Pompero, P Furbo numeral one. So it's P-F-I-R-P-O one at Twitter. And if you go into the media section, there's different photos. And one of them is the photo of Chimu. It's really um, spooky looking, but I know it was something my dad always revered and felt like it brought him good luck. So we hope that that continues on to my my family and me. Well, I can think of at least one person it didn't bring good luck to. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Chimu himself. Yes. <laughs> Chimu's got a place setting at the Thanksgiving table. Right. Yes. I was just about to say he, he shows he shows up uh the 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 probably the most interesting family Christmas card. Oh yeah. Well I was gonna make a pun that he's the head of the table, but I don't know <laughs> if that would be <laughs> so uh your your dad his career, I mean, although it started in the 50s and actually kind of morphed into the early 80s, but his peak was in the 60s and 70s. Did he ever talk about uh, what would have happened? I'm just speculating that if his character had appeared in the WWF in, say, the like the mid to late 80s, that he would have made a fortune in merchandise between a, a Chimu action figure and an Oh Yeah t-shirt. Did he ever talk about like how much money he could have made if he came on the scene a little bit later? You know, he never talked about that. Um, and we didn't, we talked about different nicknames. I forgot to mention the missing link is what he went by in, in Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. And that was before Dewey Robertson went by the missing link. And actually Dewey Robertson, who is maybe the more well-known to WWF audiences as the missing link, um, Bobby Heenan had managed him for a while. My dad knew Bobby from way back in the 60s and they wrestled um, together and they were in different territories together. And I always wondered if Bobby Heenan kind of repackaged that for Dewey Robertson since Heenan was managing him. But uh, my dad went by the missing link in Hawaii and Dave Meltzer told me that that was a creation of Ed Francis, the promoter in Hawaii, who didn't like the name Pompero Furpo and instead wanted um, thought he was like the missing link, you know, would be oh, good. Wow. The miss- yeah. So that was like an Ed Francis, the promoter in Hawaii. That was a creation of him. Um, and I was looking in his scrapbook. There were some and my dad was a, a real a huge star in Hawaii. I mean, they just loved him. And he was a very, very popular baby face there and wrestled with people like Jim Haiti and 
Peter Maivia and Nef Maiava. And he had, there were so many wrestlers who went through Hawaii on their way to and from Japan. And even uh, people like Ray Stevens, Pat Patterson, Nick Bockwinkel, all, all kinds of people that some people would be surprised who worked in Hawaii, you know, Don Morocco, Jesse Ventura, just all kinds of people from different eras. Um, so anyway, my dad had a bunch of clippings from Hawaii. That was his favorite territory. He loved Hawaii, loved the Hawaiian people and just the islands. And there was a clipping that said, uh, you know, come to, it was either the HIC, like the, I think that was the Hawaiian or Honolulu International Center. There were a couple of venues in Hawaii where they used to wrestle and it said free missing link t-shirts to the first 50 children and or 500 children. And there was a little boy wearing a white t-shirt with my dad's face on it. And it said, oh yeah. And I thought, oh, I want that t-shirt. Nice. You know, it's like a great t-shirt. So he never talked about the, um, you know, the money he would have made in the eighties or the different merchandise and things. I think he was really content with how much money he did make, you know, it let him, uh, buy a house in California, which is a uh, <laughs> good real estate investment to buy a house in San Jose. And he was able to do that from his wrestling salary. And they lived really well. And my mom didn't have to work and he traveled all over the world. And so I think that he just felt like he did well for himself. And he did. Um, he was also really proud that he said that he was a box office draw, you know, and that again with the magazines part of the way that his, uh, he had no lure about him where he would come into territories and be billed as the uh, the main event, or the, you know, he said there was preliminary undercard, um, there was semi-main event, main event, and then there was a box office draw. And he said I was always a box office draw. So he uh, he made a lot of money and didn't talk about the merchandise. And I don't know that he really kept up much with the business a lot in the 80s. Um, he kind of left it behind when he retired. Um, and so I'm not sure if he knew, I mean, I'm sure he knew about the money they made. I'm sure that's the same in baseball or any, you know, these, right. these bank breaking contracts in baseball that are just crazy now. So he was content with uh, what wrestling allowed him to do and the money that he made when he was working. You know, um, we talked baseball at the top of the hour. Benny, you and I say as much as we love doing the podcast, we're both in the wrong line of work. The, uh, <laughs> the the Orioles gave Chris Davis a uh, Bobby Vanilla style contract, and he he's retired now two years, and he's slated to make another eighteen million before before they're done paying him. So wow, we're we're in the wrong line of work. But Benny is still getting paid. Yeah, it was a a million dollars every July, right? Wow, and he's sixty years old. Yeah. He he probably last played in the in the nineties. Yeah, it's it's funny how certain things just kind of uh, kind of Im, uh, immortal, as it were, which is actually kind of a fun transition, because uh, speaking of immortal and, and last forever, you, you talk a lot, talked a lot about the um, scrapbooks and, and records that, that were kept. So I want to talk about your dad's accomplishments in wrestling. Um, I. I believe his fir very first title was the NWA Texas Heavyweight Championship. That would have been 1957 against Don Jonathan. Uh, he also won the coveted U.S. Championship three times, uh, once beating the Sheik and twice against Bobo Brazil. So right there, that's some of the people considered the most influential wrestlers of their generations. Uh, obviously, Jonathan and Brazil were huge men metaphorically and physically. Um, but – your dad was uh, was around five eight, five nine, somewhere in there. Um, so I mean, almost a foot shorter, which is impressive to 
working with the big men because that's a lot harder to do. Um, But back then, these titles had huge significance. And I think it speaks volumes to your dad's ability that he was able to beat these larger men, be booked against these larger men and be believable in dominating and beating these larger men because of the, the aura that he had. I mean, nowadays it, it, the smaller guys, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to pull off, but I mean, bet you're talking larger than life characters and your dad gets in there and he beats them. And it's believable that he's going to whoop on them and going to beat them. And promoters back then, they put titles on men they could count on to draw money. Uh, So I'm curious kind of to to circle back to the question. Did your dad ever really talk about the titles and what they meant to him? Or was was that was being champion not as big a deal? It was a really big deal. I was. looking through the scrapbooks and the clippings that he'd saved. And one of them was he'd written on a typewriter and some in Spanish, some in English about the different, you know, campeón, like the different championships that he'd had since starting his career. And it was, he chronologized like this 1952 champion here, 1953 champion here. It was very important to him because the championship, like you said, it was a sign of esteem by the promoter. And it was a way to make more money, a way to get more dates. If you're the champion, you're sticking around and wrestling more. So he was very, very proud of the championships that he won and um, chronicled those just for his own records. And I liked looking at that, too. I thought, wow. And it was back in that era in the 50s and 60s, the championships were in the territories, like you said, like Texas State Championship. And he he knew them by heart, too. I'd say, what about you know, this. And he said, well, I won the Texas state championship. And he would tell me like the date, he would tell me the opponent, he would tell me where it was. And, you know, he wrestled um, in so many different places. And when he won the championship, that was really important to him. And when he won in the Olympic auditorium, they, um, he was called the, the America's championship and they put the belt on him, but he didn't win it from anyone. Like they created that title and created the belt. And then he just came in with it. Um, and I thought I had thought at one point that he had won it from Ernie Ladd because there's some eight millimeter footage on YouTube of him holding the belt. And he's another big man, Ernie Ladd. Uh, my dad's like holding up the belt. And I, I thought, yeah, I think he won it from him. But again, I think it was Dave. So maybe Dave Meltzer. It might have been. Um, there's another photographer in Los Angeles named Dan Westbrook and he did a lot of photographs in Japan and he's an old timer who was around in my dad's era and it might have been Dan Westbrook who told me that the America's championship was just uh, created and then just put on my dad as the inaugural title holder and so that was again something that he was really proud of and as far as working with the big men um, you know it's he always said wrestling such a tough tough business and especially tough you know for someone of his height I think the hair added a few inches to him and in magazines <laughs> like he looked like this big person and he was big he had this larger than life persona but he, he was about five foot eight you know, his build weight was 240 pounds he was like a brick wall and he was so strong he was proud of that too he said my 23 inch neck and there's pictures of him doing a Boston crab you can just see like the neck how, how strong and how thick his neck was and his muscles and so I think that helped make him more believable just the way that he carried himself the way that he spoke uh, his thick accent that really was his speaking voice you know his uh, he dialed it up a little bit for the camera but that was the way that he talks like mister instead of mister like that was how he pronounced things when he spoke because English was his fifth language, he spoke Armenian because he's Armenian by ethnicity. He spoke Spanish because he grew up in Argentina. He spoke 
Portuguese, he spoke Italian, and then he learned English, and he he was multilingual. Wow. So I think Amazing. that was that was part of it too. And he really believed in himself. Like he believed in himself. He believed in his abilities. He believed in his ability to. Um, he, he thought of himself as a really great ring psychologist. You know, he said, I can just look at the fans and they stand up or they sit down or they do, you know, he, he really, um, and he was in that era also where, you know, you had to be able to work live for thousands of people. It wasn't like all the cameras today. And it's a different way that performers today have to be aware of where the cameras are. And it's, you know, he was more aware of like the arena and who was watching him. And he, yeah, he, um, he, some of his favorite opponents, you know, Don Leo Jonathan, his first opponent probably was a foot taller than he was. And other, he wrestled in Japan. Um, he wrestled tag teaming with Bruiser Brody and Ernie Ladd, who are both six foot five, six foot six, six foot seven. You know, mm -hmm. my dad was their tag team partner and they were tag teaming against people. He wrestled with both Antonio Inoki and Giant Baba in Japan. Oh, wow. He wrestled, um, he, yeah, and just Jumbo Sharuda. He wrestled big guys all the time. And they put him also in Japan with P Plowboy Frazier, who was Uncle Elmer in the WWF. And mm -hmm. he was um, known at the, in Japan. He was called the convict. And again, he looks a foot taller than my dad. But my dad's so broad and just really held his own um, with those those big men. And um, he never my dad never talked about being short or feeling short. I don't know. I mean. <laughs> He knew he was surrounded by these big men, but he never talked about it. Didn't seem like it was anything he was insecure about. You know, it's like he still went in there. He made the money. He was always a headliner. And, um, you know, my, my dad is five foot eight. My mom's father was quite tall. So my brother is six foot three. And so he said, well, he's got my mom's sides at my, you know, I'm five foot six. My mom was five foot six, but. Uh, her dad was tall, and so I've got this brother who's six foot three, and <laughs> and my dad never really seemed to comment on that either. Like, oh, John's really tall, and I'm not. It never, he never made any comments about his height. Just curious, quick follow up that it, there was a lot of famous bits, as it were, backstage where even people Andre the Giant size they would frame the camera or have. Uh, announcer squat down there was a uh, gene okerlin told a story they had andre standing on like a milk crate just to get a be better angle do you happen to know if they ever did anything like that with your father to kind of early camera tricks to make him yeah. look bigger yeah they did in fact i forgot to mention andre of course my dad really liked andre a lot and my dad felt a sympathy for him um not being able to be incognito in public, you know, he said he had to end the health issues that Andre had, but they, my dad and Andre wrestled together in Ohio. There's a great picture of my dad has Andre in a headlock. Again, I put this on the Twitter and my, you look at the bottom of the photo and my, the bottom of my dad's boots are at Andre's kneecaps. And my dad's like two feet off the ground, you know, with his arms around Andre's head. And there's another really good picture of them wrestling in Ohio where my dad, uh, Andre has my dad in a bear hug and my dad's arms are up. And so he uh, he wrestled, they wrestled in the Sheik's territory in uh, the Detroit uh, NWA promotion. And they they wrestled as tag team partners. That was, an, I, how did I forget Andre? So my dad and Andre the Giant were billed together as partners. And um, one other thing too about some of those big men, I think it was, Part of that also may have been my dad's diplomacy. He got along well with everyone. And my dad also spoke a little French, speaking Italian and Portuguese and Spanish. And so he could converse with Andre in French. He could he even learned a little Jap Japanese when he went to Japan. And people had a real affection for him. So maybe just his diplomacy and his ability to do business and um, also may have helped him get into those roles where he was working on top and working with those bigger men. He could 
connect and, and relate with them um, really well. And I, I feel like I lost your question. I went on a tangent. <laughs> so, no, you're good. Oh, the milk crate. Yes, the milk crate. Okay. So, yes, um, Dr. Mike Leno, who's a famous, infamous uh, wrestling photographer and dentist. Are you familiar with Mike oh, Leno? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. No you have to be familiar with Mike Leno. You're not oh, official yeah. in wrestling until you're familiar with Mike Leno. So um, he's he's been a really good resource and a good friend also. And he sent to me the... Um, Vince McMahon, when he was on the cover, when Vince was on the cover of Muscle and Fitness a few years ago, I don't know if that was in 2014 or 2015, that reporter had asked Vince McMahon, did you ever, Vince, did you ever feel small next to the wrestlers? And Vince said, actually, I was big, uh, taller, bigger than um, many of them. And he said, an example is Pompero Furpo. He said, I was taller than Furpo. So Vince, my dad wrestled for the McMahons against Pedro Morales in the early 1970s. And it was Vince McMahon Sr. when it was Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Yep. And Vince Jr. was on hand and doing interviews or whatever he was doing. So Vince said, I when I interviewed Furpo, he said we had him stand on an apple crate so that he didn't look a lot shorter than I am. And so that was a, a camera trick that they had him do um, that comes to mind. And Mike Leno sent me that interview. He said, oh, Vince talked about your dad in this uh, this clipping. So that was one thing that came to mind, but he didn't mention other things. Um, you know, a lot of the interviews and things were live. I don't think there was as much. Well, they taped a lot of things in Hawaii. I think a lot of the interviews in Hawaii were taped. Um, and maybe a lot of those things also were audio and not video sometimes. So I'm not sure what else they may have done and for photographs or video. Your dad was very gainfully employed over the years and pretty much wrestled on top everywhere. Like you said, he was, you know, he was the, the, the money draw. I just want to list a couple of territories, actually more than a couple, but we've got California, Portland, Texas, Australia, Hawaii, Japan, Mid-Atlantic, Tri-State, which became Mid-South, uh, New York, Puerto Rico, and of course, AWA and uh, big time wrestling in Detroit. I'm sure I'm missing several. Did he have a favorite and... Um, did he have a favorite opponent? Opponent, I, I believe he pretty much wrestled every world champion over, over that 15 to 20 year period as well. Yeah, he did. His favorite territory was Hawaii. And I said, like, why is that? Oh, well, I just loved it there. He said the people loved me there, too. You know, again, that was where he was a really popular baby face as the missing link. And so he, his favorite territory was Hawaii, but he loved Japan. He connected with people everywhere he went. You know, he really did. And um, his favorite opponent, uh, I know I'm going to miss some people, but he had so much respect for Luthez. He said he was the greatest of them all. And my dad wrestled Luthez in Oregon in the early 1960s. And that was a real accomplishment for my dad, too. You know, Lou was such a prolific champion. And as my dad got older, when he came to visit when he was in his 70s and early 80s, my dad passed right before he turned 90. He was only three months short of 90, but he would come to my house every weekend and I say, let's watch some wrestling. And he always wanted to watch, um, I think I want to say Chicago Amphitheater, Fred Kohler, and it was like Luthez and Buddy Rogers, uh, Pat O'Connor, Luthez and Raka. Um, all the, all those. That, so he he really respected Luthez a lot. He said Antonino Rocca was an idol of his. Rocca was the one who gave my dad his entree into the United States from Mexico. Um, Rocca had, was wrestling and then went to New York. And my dad teamed with Rocca in Madison Square Garden and team or teamed against. Uh, my dad wrestled against Rocca 
um, in Madison Square Garden in New York in 1960. So some of his favorites, Luthez, Raka, um, he really appreciated Nick Bockwinkle on a personal level. He always talked about how he thought Ray Stevens was an excellent wrestler, like yes. a really, really good worker. So he had a lot of respect for Ray Stevens. Uh, on a personal level, he loved the Crusher. He loved Don Leo Jonathan. Um, I know I'm going to leave people out. The Vachans, Mad Dog and Butcher Vachon. Mm -hmm. He went to Japan with Butcher. Um, Mad Dog and Butcher were wrestling for Joe Dusick in Nebraska when they crossed paths, and then also in Minnesota later uh, for AWA for Vern. So he loved the Vachans. Um, <laughs> oh, Danny Hodge, another great champion, Oklahoma. Danny Hodge. Right. Uh, in Oklahoma, Tony Bourne in Oregon, um, somebody he really respected as a wrestler. Um, Angelo Savoldi, my dad said he was a master of the trade, Angelo Savoldi, and wrestled for Leroy McGurk in Oklahoma. He said he just was an absolute master. Um, also, the people in in Mexico, he said El Santo. He said El Santo. I asked him, like, what did you think of Baba and Inoki? He's like, they were both untouchable, like true professionals. You know, that's what he said also about El Santo, just like untouchable, just a complete professional. And so those are some names that come to mind. Again, I, I'm going to look listen back on this and say, oh, I forgot to mention these other people. But um, those were some names that, and also, like I said, loved working in Hawaii. So the Mayabas and... Um, Sorry, Neff Mayava and Peter Maivia and was uh, close with their families. You know, uh, <laughs> covering so much, uh, one of the names that comes up all the time uh, on the show with Benny and I is Bruno. And uh, I mean, obviously, we, we got to talk about the Northeast. Yeah, a lot of people remember your father in the Northeast, his 1972 uh, then WWF championship match against Pedro Morales. But, but he actually had two runs in New York when it was still Capital Wrestling. Um, during his first run in 1960, he worked numerous singles and tag matches against San Bruno and San Martino. Uh, he's, we talked about it before we, we got, went on to record. Um, his actually has wins over Pedro Morales. Uh, he, he was in New York really for most of 1960 and then shorter run in 62 where he wrestled Buddy Rogers. Um, and the title in, in the uh, title match at the Sunnyside Garden. Uh, you, you talk a lot about you know, uh, Hawaii and some of the uh, the areas out west. Did your dad ever talk about his time in New York? And um, I mean, especially just for the sake of of Benny and I, uh, did he ever talk about Bruno? I mean, I can't imagine. Or let me rephrase that. I I can easily imagine the those two being real life friends. Yes, I forgot. See, I knew I'd forget some people. I forgot to mention Bruno and Pedro, both on that list of people that my dad uh, really liked very much. And Pedro, he always said Pedro was a good kid. You know, he always referred to him that way. And Pedro's such a perfect babyface champion um, in that era. And yeah, when my dad came to New York, I mean, that was just the big time, like that he got to go to New York in 1960. You know, my dad had only been in the United States for a few years. And what an, what an American dream for a boy from Buenos Aires, Argentina. And again, he credited Antonino Rocca with giving him that push um, to work in New York. And yes, he met Bruno and worked with Bruno in 1960. And he considered Bruno 
uh, very serious, like good champion, always training, had good old world values. Again, my dad spoke Italian, so they could connect on that level. Um, and I, my dad wrestled also with Angelo Poffo and Lanny was in the car with my dad and my dad wrestled Randy Poffo, Randy Savage. And I always think Angelo Poffo is similar to Bruno Sammartino in the sense of being old world Italian, being a family guy. And Lanny would tell stories about how my dad, when Angelo and Lanny and my dad were in the car just making towns in that Detroit territory, driving to Ohio or wherever they were driving. My dad would say like, Angela, pull over. And they would talk in Italian, pull over, let me get some bell peppers. Yeah, I'm going to cook later. And like they would cook together and nice. do all kinds of, um, <laughs> just like these wholesome, wholesome, wholesome things. Yeah. And I think Bruno oh, yeah. was part of that too. And he really respected Bruno, who also, Bruno was very serious about wrestling and respected the business and carried himself professionally and maintained his physique and mm-hmm. uh, was just had, had come up from hard circumstances like my dad did in a different country to make it in the United States. So they had a lot of commonalities. And my dad was very happy for Bruno's success because he also my dad kept a bunch of posters. Again, I post these on have posted these on my Twitter where my dad is wrestling against Bruno and they're on the same card, like you said, on the East Coast in New York and um he was very happy for Bruno's success then and later. And they met, they reconnected in 2015 at the WWE Hall of Fame weekend. Um, okay. Lanny also brought my dad and me as a guest, which was so kind of him. And um, we were talking a little bit before we started. I'm just devastated by Lanny Poffo's recent passing. He was such a good friend. I'm just heartsick that he passed so young. Really and, um, yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, I still am just devastated, but he was just such a wonderful family friend. And when um, when Lanny was on hand that weekend, he said, oh, he said, Bruno's here, Bruno's here. You know, you got to bring your dad. And my dad was 84 at the time and um, would walk with a cane or if he had to go faster, sometimes use a walker. And so mobility was kind of difficult. But my dad remembered all the old things. And when he was 84, his memory was still good. And uh, my brother drove my dad down to the stadium so that he could see Bruno. And I got a little bit of video of them in the hallway talking to each other. And they, my dad and Bruno probably hadn't seen each other since the 70s. And it was just this wonderful reunion. I wish I would have videotaped a little bit more of that. Um, and I don't know how long it had been since my dad had seen Pedro Morales, but he was also very um, happy for Pedro's success. And he enjoyed those programs that they did. And uh, my dad, you know, going in as the heel and Porter and Pedro, all the Puerto Rican fans in New York. And um, my dad, you know, he, my dad enjoyed that role of like being, you know, looking like he was working really stiff with Pedro and like he was really uh, beating up Pedro and just these old women and these Puerto Ricans like coming out of their seats, like just wanting to kill my dad. You know, he got like a real you kick out of that. I, <laughs> right. I asked him, I said, did you prefer being a baby face or a heel? And he just started laughing. He's like, of course, a heel. You know, that was so much more fun. Um, so he liked, he liked that better. And um yeah, both of those two men were um, professional, you know, respected opponents of my father's and also good friends. Mary, speaking of the WWE Hall of Fame, um, one of one of both Dan and my, my our gripes against Vince McMahon and the WWE is they don't really pay, in our opinion, homage to the the older wrestlers who really built a bridge to what we see today. And I, I know that your dad was inducted into the uh, Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, but I guess it was in 2018. Um, did he ever talk about, and there's so many greats, like Ivan Koloff, Dominic DiNucci, who was our first guest on our show, and your dad, people who like absolutely deserve to be in a Hall of Fame, no doubt about it. Did he ever, did he ever talk about not being in a WWE Hall of Fame? 
You know, honestly, I don't know if he even knew about the WWE Hall of Fame or if it was even important to him. Um, he didn't talk about that. But when my brother told my dad that my dad was being inducted into the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2018, and he he didn't he my dad knew that it wasn't affiliated with WWE. Like he didn't think that was the hall of fame he was being inducted into. Like he knew it was the professional wrestling hall of fame. Um, he was really, my dad was really emotional. He was really moved by that. And he kind of teared up and said that it felt good to be recognized, you know, for his work. And so that was really important to him. And that was a lovely weekend. I had some reservations about traveling to Texas because my dad hadn't been on an airplane probably for five or six years. And he had just turned 88. And I thought, you know, I don't know if this is a good idea for him to go out there. And it right. just it meant so much to him. He was so emotional and um, he gave a beautiful speech. My brother recorded my dad giving the speech and decided to play the speech there. And I'm glad that he did that because my dad was very emotional that weekend. And, um, you know, everyone gave him a standing ovation. It was a lovely tribute wow. to him. And um, yeah, that was that was so sweet. I'm so glad that we got to do that because he passed a year and a half later. And that was our last real um like family memory out together and him being recognized and the, the whole crowd was saying oh yeah and he my dad got the hall of fame ring and they gave him the cowboy hat and he got a real kick out of it he saw some people there also that were family of friends that he had um wrestled like family of billy red lions uh george gordienko like there were different family members there at the hall of fame that he got to talk to that meant a lot to him also because he had stories of working with their family, also Sam Houston, who's just lovely. He was at the Hall of Fame and came over and paid homage to my dad and Ross Hart, uh, Brett's brother and Stu's son, who's like the Hart family historian, who's fantastic. He came over and, Frippo, good to see you. I last saw you in 1974. You know, and they were like talking about how my dad had made a brief visit to Calgary uh, when Stu was promoting. So it was a very memorable weekend. And I thought what a gift to have had that before he passed. Speaking of gifts, I, I appreciate everything you, you all these stories you shared with us. I mean, we we knew before we got to recording that we weren't going to get through half of what we wanted to talk about. Um, and I mean, as we wrap up, I, I can't I thank you enough for your time and just the the insight. And it's why we love having family and people that were there on because it's it's such a unique insight that you can't get from any book or or interview elsewhere yeah so i do appreciate your time and and hopefully nothing uh nothing you shared with us wasn't was difficult too difficult to talk about oh it was my pleasure to be here and i wanted just to touch briefly on his post wrestling life because um you had noted earlier when we were in communication that he had worked at the post office yes and mm -hmm. he did that um for from the age of 50 he started at 56 so 55, 56 years old. And he did that until he was 78. And oh, wow. he was a young 78. And he never was a mail deliverer, but he was a mail processor. So it was noted that because my dad worked in the post office in San Jose, he likely processed Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer newsletters through the bulk mail department. And <laughs> I know if my dad ever saw those at the time, but um, he was, that was something that uh, was really important to him like that career after wrestling so i think that having i i asked him you know was it uh, was it hard for you to transition from wrestling into this kind of nine to five um post office job he always worked graveyard shifts so like 9 p.m to five in the morning and oh, okay um, 
He, you know, my dad just had an incredible work ethic. He loved to work and I think it kept him young and it kept him mentally and physically healthy. And he was just strong as an ox, even into his seventies. And so he, um, he just took his job really seriously. He felt like he was being of service. It had excellent benefits, excellent oh, insurance. Yeah. He had a great mm-hmm. pension. Wrestling doesn't have that exit plan. Like Roddy Piper noted on the HBO special, he said wrestling has a great entrance plan, but there's no exit plan, oh, you know, right. so that kept my dad financially solvent also into his golden years. And uh, it was just, that was a fantastic episode in his career. And our family was very proud of him. He got different commendations from the post office. He had found, there were multiple incidents where he had found like a bag of money or found these unlabeled things. And he was, and turned them in. He was also like, just incredibly honest. You know, that was his values were very important to him, like his integrity, his honesty, his loyalty, his work ethic. So that was, it was a career that suited him. Um, and I, I was just really proud of him. So transitioning after wrestling, you know, and that was why it was nice for my brother and me to circle back to him and um, go with him to that hall of fame, because after he stopped wrestling, um, he kind of stopped, you know, he didn't really go back and revisit often. Um, any of those places or that part of his career. And also probably because he was working at the post office, you know, he didn't like to take a lot of vacation time. Like, you know, right. he, a, he worked every day. Uh, so I, I did want to mention that, that he was um, proud of his career as a postal employee after the, after the wrestling stopped. And we were proud of that part of his life as well. Bulk, bulk mail. I worked at a bulk mail place in high school. That's, that's hard work. It is hard work. He had tendonitis in his hands from, yeah. you know, and uh, in his, like issues with his knees and things like that. It was very hard work. And he was always commended for that too. The post office did some write-ups of, they're like one of our postal employees was the wild bull of the pompous. And he talked about his wrestling career. They had different, their professional newsletter that got circulated among postal employees. So people got a huge kick out of them. They always called him <laughs> champ wherever he went. And, but he had, uh, he looked different after he retired, he shaved his beard and he cut his hair shorter. He had such a distinct face with his eyes, but without right. the beard and the long hair, he just looked like, uh, you know, John Q. Public working at the post office to some regards. So he always seemed very Natalie attired. Every picture I've seen of him yes. always dressed to the nines. Yes, I mentioned in a, <laughs> I mentioned before that when my dad was living in assisted living, one of the residents said to me, he said, oh, you're uh, Juan's daughter. My dad's name was Juan, J-U-A-N. He said, you're Juan's daughter. He said, wow, he's always so sharply dressed he said he must have worked in the fashion industry and i just like laughed out loud i said oh my gosh let me show you where he used to work and i pulled up some wrestling matches he said i cannot believe that's your father oh my gosh you know i can't believe it uh, my dad was always really sharply dressed and um yeah <laughs> i know we're i know we're finishing up <laughs> well you know just just out of curiosity you, you mentioned his life after wrestling a few years ago here i i live in norfolk in virginia uh, he was in town, something unrelated. I I ran into uh, Ivan Koloff, the Russian mm-hmm. bear, and he was he was really kind of I don't want to say excited, but he was genuinely you could tell he he was genuinely appreciative that someone recognized him. And you know we we chatted for a little bit, and and um, I caught up to him later for the event that he was in town for. But uh, I'm curious, did, did your, you said he changed his appearance. Did your dad have that where he might be just, you know, at the grocery store and somebody, oh, hey, you know, when, when I was a kid or when I was younger, like, did he get that kind of fan attention or did, yeah, he did he did. blend in he, that well? No, he did get that attention even after he'd cut his hair because I got married in Hawaii in 2003 and my dad was 73 
And I got married in Maui and he came, obviously, of course, to the wedding. It was just uh, my husband and my parents and siblings who came to the wedding. And um, people recognized my dad in Hawaii at 73 years old. And people approached him with like tears in their eyes and hugged him and said, Link, oh my gosh, like I would know you anywhere. Like I heard your voice. I saw your eyes. So he was very recognizable and he would get emotional also when he was recognized sometimes because he... um he gave his all to the business, you know, he gave his heart to wrestling and he, he was also to our family. He's his values. Like he really valued, he said, everything I did, all the bumps I took, all the injuries I had was for my family, you know, brought before I was even a twinkle in his eye, he brought his parents and his sisters to the United States. And 20 years later, when I was born and my sister and brother, he said, everything I did was for my family. And it really touched him that people recognized him and remembered him. And he had a real love for the fans and he, thought of the fans as the people who made what he did possible. He said they demanded my action. And um, he said, I never wanted to let any of them down. I never wanted to let promoters down. Like I showed up when I was supposed to show up. You know, my dad always preached a clean lifestyle, didn't drink, didn't do drugs. You know, had a beer here and there, but um, didn't, wasn't in that like kind of party lifestyle. I'm sure that contributed to his longevity, almost living to 90 years old, you know, so he, um, it meant a lot to him. He just was a very genuine, sincere person with a big heart. And so when people recognized him and they did, uh, one time we were talking about baseball. I, I love baseball. So I was at an Oakland A's game as a young teenager, like 13 years old. And there were some people behind us. It was just me and my sister, my brother and my mom. And there were some people behind us talking about wrestling. They must have been from the Midwest because they were talking about Bobo Brazil, who my dad also really liked. They said, oh, and the Sheik Bobo Brazil. They said, oh, and we can't forget Furpo. And I, I think I was just so young and kind of embarrassed. I didn't say anything. But if that happened now, I'd say that was my dad. You know, and so they were actually just talking wow. about him right in front of me. And that that's happened a couple of times in my life where I've been talking to someone. They said, I grew up in Ohio. And I said, oh, my dad wrestled there. And one time a man I was talking to is probably in his 60s. He said, no kidding. He said, Pompero Frippo's your dad. I was just texting about him today with my brother. And he showed me his phone. And he said, we do these little fantasy matches. And I go, Frippo and Bull Curry, what's the finisher against? You know, and he said, we do these like little things on our phone where we talk about the wrestling we watched as kids. And he said, we were just talking about your dad today. And so I know that he made a real impact on people outside of our family. And that meant a lot to him. And it means a lot to me, too. Well, you know, the uh, number one ranked, I mean, obviously outside of us, right, Benny, the number one ranked wrestling podcast is uh, Jim Cornette. Right after us. And yeah, and his uh, his entrance song only mentions three names, and one of them is Pampiro Furpo. What an honor. I love I love Jim Cornette. He sent me a couple of DVDs that I was able to share with my dad before he passed, and it was eight millimeter footage of my dad wrestling in the Olympic Auditorium against the golden Greek, John Tolos and Ernie wow, Ladd, wow. and the Sheik is in there on a cage match. And I don't know who took that footage, probably a fan with a video camera. I think Mike Leno said that he took the footage himself, but I'm not sure if that's true. Um, but what, a, what an amazing historian Jim Cornette is. I love listening. I learned so much just listening to his podcast and I'm so honored and thrilled that he's mentioned in their theme song. It's um, really a treat. Absolutely. Well, before we let you go again, thank you so much for your time. But before we let you go, um, fans listening, where, where can they where can they find out more about your father? See, see some of his stuff where, where uh, any any social media or, or uh, YouTube recommendations, anything like that? Yeah, I do. I have a um, YouTube my YouTube channel. I uploaded some videos of my dad and my um, 
channel is just Mary Elizabeth CA, like California. And I posted some videos of my dad. There's some footage of him at Cauliflower Alley Club in 2001. He received an award there and Bobby Heenan, who my dad really was fond of, and Nick Bockwinkle and Danny Hodge are giving a speech and talking about my dad. And then he accepted it. It's just, it was like a men's wrestling award, like an honorary recipient of something. So I put that footage on YouTube and it just says Pompero for both CAC for Cauliflower Alley Club and other luminaries in the video. He's talking to Antonio Inoki, Stu Hart is there, uh, Tex McKenzie from the Detroit Territory. There's so many, you know, I'm forgetting some people, but that Pompero for both CAC video is really cool. Um, YouTube, you know, has some footage of him. I wish there were more. I'm on Twitter, P Furpo one at Twitter, and I post uh, a bunch of media and all of his different scrapbooks and clippings there. So always love hearing from the fans, and I appreciate people's support. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll definitely, Benny will reach out to you. We'll coordinate having you back on the show because I know there's so much. We we were still in the 1960s and, <laughs> and when we got through. So I still have so much more of your father's career, and I'm sure you have plenty more stories to tell. I would love to come back, and it was a pleasure to talk with both of you. And again, I really appreciate your um, keeping these stories alive and your interest in talking about these um, foundational people. You know, I, I okay, I'll leave you with this one thing. In preparation for the podcast, I was looking through some of his clippings, and um, there was a a judge of a wrestling match. This was in Oklahoma for Leroy McGurk of one of my dad's wrestling matches, probably against Angelo Savoldi. And the judge ringside was Ed Strangler Lewis. So, you know, you can't get much more historical than that. I mean, he goes back a long way. Hmm. <laughs> Strangler Lewis. There's a name I haven't heard in a while, right, Benny? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I was, thinking, I was thinking of Strangler Murphy, but he was he was on the Munsters. <laughs> he, was, he was the only guy that the mass marvel actually defeated well i wouldn't know if that was a takeoff on skull murphy there's a youtube of my dad wrestling skull murphy uh, black and white i think with raka now what ter- was that in new york i'm guessing that was in new york yeah i think in, in he actually bruno and raka teamed up against your dad and waldo von eric that was the, the main they, they wrestled many many times in this in 1960 yeah, and my dad went to Japan. Waldo Von Erich was part of the tour in Japan. Yeah, Skull Murphy and Newark Armory on the East Coast. Okay, right there. there you go. Pat Kelly and Skull Murphy. What a name, Skull Murphy. Skull Murphy. I mean, the only the only strangling we do around here is how much I want to strangle Benny when he tells those bad <laughs> jokes in our intro. <laughs> <laughs> I got marks around my neck. <laughs> well. Uh, again, I thank you so much. So for the original Long Island Ice Z, for the Mary, the wondrous daughter of Pampero Furpo, I'm Dan Spaciano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Good night. <laughs>